0: Hello everyone. Welcome back to another COVID-19 law and policy briefing, uh, which are produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium Initiative housed in the Northeastern University School of Law. I want to thank, as always, our co-sponsors: the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, uh, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. So, as we always do, we are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic, and hopefully to answer some of your burning questions about issues that are ongoing right now. Uh, For more information on the COVID legal response, please also check out our report, which is uh, called Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19, available at www.covid19policyplaybook.org. The report, which came out last summer, has chapters uh, on on 36 different topics related to the legal aspects of the COVID-19 response. And I'm very happy to announce that we're very close to being done with our volume two of that report, which should come out in about a month or so. So stay tuned for that as well. Um, So uh, as as part of making sure that we can remain informed on all the important legal issues related to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we have two very special guests here with me today. Um, I'm Lance Gable. I'm an associate professor at Wayne State University Law School. Uh, Joining me today are Professor Ross Silverman, who's a professor of health policy and management at Indiana University Fairbanks School of Public Health and professor of public health and law at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and Jill Kruger, who is the director of the Northern Region of the Network for Public Health Law, uh, coming to us from Minnesota. So uh, please use the hashtag, hashtag COVID law briefing for any questions or comments in response to the briefing. Uh, so today, our top is all about the states. Uh, for most of the pandemic so far, states have largely been on their own with the federal government taking primarily a hands-off approach during the Trump administration, or in some cases, an antagonistic stance towards some state efforts to respond to the pandemic. And uh, as a result, states have had to improvise, they've had to, in some cases, compete with each other. Uh, and the resulting impact has been very different outbreaks in different areas, very different levels of of resources and availability of strategies or use of strategies in different areas. And now that we have the Biden administration in place, um, uh, which has a more aggressive and coherent response, hopefully more coordinated, um, from the federal level, we're also likely to see some changes into how states are responding to the pandemic. Uh, most of the focus in the media over the past couple of weeks has really been on the vaccination campaign, the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines, appropriately so. Uh, but there's a lot more going on in addition to that at the state level. Um, and it if you think back to earlier in the pandemic, we we had lots of discussions on these on these briefings about uh, other state intervention strategies, uh, capacity for COVID testing, uh, contact tracing, other kinds of distancing measures, etc. And so, what what I wanted to focus on, at least to start with today, is the question of how states are doing on some of those other non-vaccine uh, aspects of COVID response. And so, my first question goes to Ross. Um, we know that states uh, had varying levels of success in implementing those kinds of strategies like testing and contact tracing earlier in the pandemic. And so my question to you is, what is going on with those other strategies right now at the state level? Have states improved? Uh, have states jettisoned those kinds of efforts as vaccinations have started to come online? Uh, what's going on at the state level? And also, uh, what are some of the legal issues that have been arising at the state level on these topics?
1: Sure. Well, thank you, Lance. It's a pleasure to be here and to uh, participate as part, of this, uh, uh, as part of this process and, you know, getting involved with the education program that you all, are providing uh, through this uh, through these services and through these publications. Um, so, just wanted to take a very short course through the process of testing, tracing, and isolation. And, you know, traditionally, when we have infectious diseases, as part of the infectious disease control process, first and foremost, you want to make sure that people can get tested and determine whether or not they have the infectious disease. When people do have a positive test, the process generally is that they will then be contacted by a uh, representative from the public health agencies, um, who then will want to try and figure out where that person recently has been, so that they can assess uh, and who that person has been associating with recently, so that they can then get in touch with those other folks that may have been a close contact, so that they can encourage those people to also uh, get tested, and that the both the person with the positive test. Uh, that they can take the steps necessary to isolate themselves so they don't spread the infect further and so that uh, the people who may have been exposed can get tested as quickly as possible so they can find out what next steps they may need. It. What we found over the course of the process um, regarding the law is that the laws are pretty straightforward. These are fundamental uh, services that are provided in infectious disease control at the state and local level, uh, state and, and local health departments ramp of development of contact tracing programs. There's a lot, as you mentioned, there's a lot of variety in what was done at the state and local levels, but I think we can say uniformly that these programs have been completely overwhelmed. Um, and we can get into that in a little bit as to all the reasons why they were overwhelmed. But uh, what we've found is with the massive numbers of positive tests that have come uh, forward, uh, there aren't nearly enough contact tracers uh, to be involved to actively do all the, not just the reaching out to the people who test positive, but also in collecting all of the data they would like and then reaching out to the potential contact. In fact, in some jurisdiction, we found that the local health department were encouraging the people who tested positive to go contact, do their own contact, and to reach out to other people who they think they may have come in contact with to let them know uh, what might be uh, going
0: on. Now, was that <laughs> driven by lack of capacity? Not enough people... Um, Available within the health departments to do that kind of work, or was that driven by practicality? That uh, the idea that maybe people reaching out themselves would have more uh, likelihood of getting a getting a response to that out- to that outreach. It's a
1: good. Well, you 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 raise one of the concerns that has come up in this in this pandemic, which is trust in the public health authority and cooperation uh, with public health intervention. There is a lot of that's been a challenge uh, in the response effort. Um, this is more of a practical determination, however, by by the local health department. They just, there is a point at which contact tracing is no longer really feasible um, in this process. Um, and we just, we hit, you know, especially with the wave that started around Thanksgiving, you know, we really just had state and local authorities overwhelmed. And um, what we have now also as we've moved into vaccine delivery is a lot of folks have had, You know, this is not, this hasn't been a, a resource expansion. It's actually just been a shifting of personnel in many situations from contact tracing to into uh, the vaccine delivery
0: at this point. So a, a, a related question on a slightly different topic in terms of state interventions. Um, historically, when there have been infectious disease pandemics, a lot of focus has been put on legal powers to use quarantine and isolation as strategies to stop the spread of disease. And um, I, I know that quarantine powers have been um, used or at least voluntary quarantine strategies have been uh, applied, um, especially for people traveling across state lines or traveling across international borders. But it seems like um, quarantine and isolation have been less prominent as a strategy uh, compared with other kinds of distancing uh, during the COVID-19 response. And I'm wondering uh, uh, what's going on with with the use of those kinds of powers at the state level and what what explains the difference this time compared with maybe uh, some previous kinds of uh, pandemics like this?
1: So so I think one of the things that we're finding is uh, public health has almost universal Adopted a voluntary participation approach, both to the quarantining and isolation component, as well as to the participation in the sharing of information about contact tracing and the like. It really, again, a bend but don't break kind of an approach. They don't want to overwhelm people. You don't want to scare people off. You don't. You, you do want people to report share. Um, but the nature of this virus itself, um, you know, it, a lot of it is pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. Red um, has over. Overwhelm the system, so it's spreading faster uh, than we can track how quick you know how quickly it has spread. The access to testing itself has been an issue, um, and so uh, it hasn't been as readily available as, as uh, or the response rate is not quick enough, uh, so that you can really get you know stop the spread before people have you know, come in contact with a huge array of different uh, different folks. Um, there have been challenges with isolation and quarantine. You know, we find some significant equity coming up here. The Pew uh, uh, Charitable Trust, they they did or they, their survey arm did a survey back to ball. Um, and they found the vast majority of people say they would isolate if they got a positive test. If they were told You're, you've got COVID-19, you need to stay home for 10 days, uh, they'd be willing to do it. But about a third of people said it would be difficult for them to do that, either because of their living conditions or their work situation. Um, and we really haven't done enough as a system uh, you know, through supports and protections to make sure that people can uh that people can can successfully manage that and then finally we do have you know the the big you know a number of the trusted um i think that that has uh uh created cern i mean we should let people know as far as privacy and confidentiality is concerned the contact tracing process is a very highly protected process as far as confidentiality and protection of your information is concerned um and the core part of the training in contact tracing is to make sure that we value uh, people's privacy and we're only collecting information that is essential to our understanding of how the how the virus is spread. But there's distrust every place, right? And so that has really undermined people's willingness to participate, willingness to uh, uh, to adhere to the recommendations, um, and, and and really has um, you know has undermined a lot of these these processes, even. As they were able to be involved in, in response, I think as the numbers come back down again, we'll be able to use contact tracing more as kind of a you know a, a spot you know kind of uh, uh, spot busting kind of a situation to, to stop clusters um, and and to try to shut things down that way. But th- this is spreading so quickly and it spread, uh you know without a trace really that it's going to be difficult for us to use it as a central component the way that say it was you than Ebola. Okay, thank you.
0: Uh, I want to want to turn our attention over to Jill for a few minutes because uh, th- there's a topic that I know she's been uh, following really closely and I uh, want to highlight a little bit during our conversation today, which is um, the issue that's that's arisen in many states between legislatures and executive branch officials over use of public health powers or emergency powers to respond to COVID-19. Um, there, there have been uh, some quite high-profile conflicts between the different branches of government um, that, that are centered around these uses of, of uh, political power to issue executive orders and other kinds of intervention strategies. And so I, I wanted to start with uh, just asking, you know, what sorts of disputes are we seeing at the state level within government and between government branches and how have courts handled them so far?
2: Thanks, Lance. And, and thank you for having me on, on this briefing as well. I really appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, we certainly have seen some high profile conflicts over the use of, of emergency power. In, in quite a few states. And, and those, those conflicts have really covered a lot of territory, um, you know, from whether the executive, you know, whether the executive branch has authority to, to address uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, what the nature of that authority is, and who within the executive branch has the authority. Is that the governor? Is it the secretary or commissioner of health? Um, who has the authority to act? And And if one, um, you know, if the governor's authority is constrained, might might the the secretary or commissioner of health still have some other independent or, or surviving authority? Um, you know, what is the origin of the authority? Is it, does it rest in, you know, sort of a modernized public health or emergency powers act, you know, enacted in the 21st century? Or, um, you know, in, in Michigan, we saw a, a case that that <laughs> detailed, you know, that involved analysis of, of statutes from the 1940s, sort of civil defense era statutes. Um, you know, and, and the way those statutes are, you know, were drafted, is, is different. Um so we've also seen just you know concerns about procedural constraints. How how can the executive branch act? Is it through an order? Is there rulemaking required? Um, you know what kinds of you know does the legislature have have any rule? Does it have an oversight rule? Can it terminate an order issued by the executive? Um, can it impose you know any time limits upon an order once that order has been issued? I mean separate question. Of, you know in, in terms of drafting a. A statute. Um, you know, are the, are the orders renewable? Um, you know, were they intended for, were these emergency powers intended for an emergency that, you know, now is approaching the one year mark. Um, and so you asked about, about court cases. So those just, just sort of rattling off some of the types of conflicts we've seen and, and then how we've seen those play out, you know, in, in many of the States, um, courts have taken a, a fairly, um, generous view to the authority of governors and state health commissioners and secretaries um, to issue orders related to community mitigation measures, even where the state laws really were, um, you know, didn't have anything specific about masking or social distancing, or um, sometimes even very much about business closures or, or closures of health, houses of worship. Um, you know, many of them have more specific language about something like school closures. Um, but, but in many states, um the courts have taken a fairly um, have relied upon broad delegations of emergency powers by state legislatures. Um, for example, in Grisham V. Reeb, the New Mexico Supreme Court upheld the Secretary of Health's emergency orders um, and actually including provisions authorizing imposition of, of criminal citations and civil administrative penalties to enforce those business restrictions and closures. Um, but of course there are, there are some cases that have gone the other way and you know I grew up in Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, we saw the state legislature challenge the order issued by the designee to be the Secretary of Health um, on several of grounds, several grounds and, and many of those were sustained. Um, by a four to three majority of the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court. In um, that case was Wisconsin legislature v. Palm. And the court there held that the order issued by the secretary was, in fact, a rule. Um, and so it wasn't enforceable because it had not gone through the rulemaking process. And I already referred to the Michigan Supreme Court case. Um, and in that case, the court found that you know the, the civil defense 1940s era statute um, was unconstitutionally overbroad. And the court found um, that it delegated essentially all of the state's police powers to the executive branch. and, and <laughs> essentially allowed discretion over an entire economy and, and said, we're going to need more precise guardrails for that kind of authority from, from the legislature. Um, now, of course, those, those Supreme Court cases haven't been the last word. We've seen the governors and public health officials in states like Wisconsin and Michigan um, continue to search for ways to exercise authority, even if it's in a more narrow or limited way, and um, to see the legislatures continue to Seek to, to constrain that authority.
0: Yeah, and, and I wanted to follow up on that last point because obviously one of the things that's driving these conflicts is you know, underlying political disagreements about what the right um, response should be and and how how much restrictions should be placed on different aspects of people's activities to try to contain the virus. And you know what, some of these larger questions end up getting subsumed to a lot of you know general you know political conflict that goes on in other areas as well. Um, but you mentioned that legislatures and executive branch officials are continuing to um, have these these disputes about power and that some legislators are beginning to um, try to change those underlying statutory authorities or regulatory authorities. And so uh, what are some of the new developments along those lines that have been happening in the last couple of months?
2: Sure now that's that's something we're really interested in tracking. Um, Work with public health officials in, in all 50 states of the network. And so um, we're hearing word about some of these bills that have been introduced. Now, it's it's interesting, you know, probably at least half of the states, it's, it's hard to get a precise count of, of bills introduced. Every state legislature is meeting this year. <clears throat> um, and, you know, the volume of bills is, is really... Um, high, shall we say, Um, you know, there's, especially after sessions were cut short last year and, and, and the like, Um, you know, in any case, so, so not, there was a lot that was introduced last year, but um, the main sort of bill that passed last year was, um, were limitations on the liability of businesses um, that might arise um, in relation to the spread of COVID-19. So that's, that's interesting and not really to do with what state or local public health authority. But so the sorts of bills that we're seeing, um, you know, that are still pending, um, some of them would just remove authority from local health officials, local health boards. Um, and, and the draft, Of those can vary. Some of the bills are are strictly um, about removing the authority, emergency authority from from local health officials or state and local health officials. Some are are drafted in in such a way as to seem quite broad so that you'd have, um, you know, you have to wonder, would city councils be overseeing restaurant inspections um, and fairly routine public health activities, which I I can't imagine those those legislative officials would be um, eager to have. Some of the bills would require the the elected officials to approve of local health official actions. Um, There's a bill in Tennessee that would prevent the governor and local government from classifying businesses as essential or non-essential for the purpose of of issuing orders that might differentiate among those categories. Um, There's a bill in Texas that would define places of worship as essential. Um, There are bills in a, you know, a number of states that would prevent local mask mandates, um, you know, uh, bills in several states that would address school closures and perhaps um shift the, the the responsibility, the decision-making authority from public health officials to school officials, um, to school local school boards um, on whether or not to, to close schools. And again, those bills can vary in how they're drafted, how narrowly or broadly they're drafted, you know, so,
0: and, and, um, you oh, know, whether it's COVID-19
2: specifically or, or any uh, infectious disease outbreak.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to ask then, so with, with all of this churning potential um, legislative and regulatory change out there, that's being driven by COVID response and the the, the different um, uh, positions on who should be making those decisions. Uh, what what are the what are the short and long term implications of this for public health?
2: Oh gosh! <laughs>
0: um, and, and, I, and and quickly because I, I think we only have a couple more minutes. But like oh okay. Know, well, so, so so I guess what are what are what are the key takeaways from this? Like what should we be as people who are interested in in public health law and policy be focused on? And and what what should what are the potential outcomes of some of these kinds of
2: initiatives? Well, I, I mean just. <laughs> one really brief thing I can say is Lindsay Wiley has called for democratizing the law of social distancing and sets forth six principles in a blog in health affairs that I really hope will be influential and, and widely read I mean I, I think we probably shouldn't make these decisions in haste um, you know the uniform law Commission has a study committee uh, several study committees related to emergency public health powers um, that will make recommendations in July as to whether uh, the uniform law Commission should p- support a um, uh, point drafting committees. We've had, you know, Kentucky and Pennsylvania have been looking at, and and other states as well have been looking at winning task forces. I mean, that might be a way to to have the stakeholders come together um, and really talk through this in a transparent way. We know that, um, you know, transparency can help us get buy-in. We know that we need to call on people's sense of altruism. I I think um, Ross was kind of talking about this as well, people's desire. Um, to help the community. Um, And we have to acknowledge reasonable concerns. Um, And, you know, to the extent we can create, um, you know, we talk in public health a lot about making the healthy choice the easy choice. You know, are there ways that we can do that with supports, with, you know, if if people have to stay home, how can we make that financially feasible? Um, How can we provide broadband access if people have to do remote learning with their kids? Um, So I think there's, there's lots of lessons to be learned Learned, um, and the learning will continue on past this legislative session. Well, oh,
0: Thank you. Those are all really good points. I, w- I want to give Ross a chance to have a final word as well. Um, what, should we be- what should states be focusing on right now? What should we all be focusing on right now?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things that is good to see is right now um, there is national coordination that is going on and funding that is uh, being proposed and, and resources that are coming to the state uh, in order to address the current pandemic. I think one of the challenges we're going to run into is... You know, how much is going to be fighting over this uh, pandemic and what's going to be left uh, in place to address the next. And so on the one hand, we want to make sure that we don't narrow these laws too much um, uh, and then tie our hands when a completely different type of issue arises the next time. And I think the second part uh, is local funding. Uh, Every state is going to have a big hole uh, in their budget, Um, making sure that public health is adequately supported going into the future. Future, and that any, you know, rivalries or bitterness that might be arising uh, right now doesn't also translate into massive cuts to public health services, I think is going to be something we need to watch out for as well.
0: I, I want to thank both of my guests so much for joining us today, uh, Jill Krueger and Ross Silverman. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in. Uh, we are going to be doing these briefings uh, here on Twitter uh, just about every Tuesday and Thursday at noon Eastern. Uh, you can go to at Public Health Law Watch or search hashtag COVID. Law Briefing to find these briefings. Uh, recordings are also available on the Public Health Law Watch website. And the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast, which is www.twill.com, T-W-I-H-L. Uh, the COVID Law and Policy Briefings are produced by Faith Calic and Liz Voyles. And thank you again. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe, wash your hands, double mask, keep your distance whenever you can. And when that vaccine appointment opens up for you, please get vaccinated. Thank you.